0: Well, this morning we return to Psalm 145 and we're looking at the attribute of God's sovereignty. How would you like to talk with God sometime? Well, you can. All you have to do is pray. And how would you like God to talk with you? Well, he does. All you have to do is open your Bible and read it. When we pray, God is listening when we read the Bible, he is speaking. And when you read the scriptures, there are some places where it says some great things about God. Because remember, the Bible is the revelation of God. It is the word of of God. And it tells us about God. And some sections are very concentrated and tell us many things about God in a very short space. And one of those places is Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is a mini theology of the attributes of God. Every line of the psalm declares something different about God. Things that you and I need to know, things that will change our everyday life if we choose to believe and live in light of them. And because of this, we are taking time to look at Psalm 145 closely and slowly. We are looking at the text. We are discovering what things say and what they mean. And then we are going outside the text to find out what the rest of the Bible says about What Psalm 145 says. When we're looking at the text. We're looking at. We're doing biblical theology. And when we go to other places in the Bible. We are doing systematic theology. But the goal of it all. Is not to give you more knowledge. So that you can just know more. The goal of it is not to make you. Proud or puffed up. Because you know some things. Someone else doesn't. The goal is. For you to know God better, to worship Him more deeply and live in light of who He is for His glory. And so this morning we come to Psalm 145 and I just want to read the psalm to you. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. Psalm 145 reads, I will extol you, my God, my O King... I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day, I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another. And shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. And I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. And I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful Slow to anger and great and loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. This is a great text. A great psalm. And we have been learning some things from this psalm already. The first thing that is that God is sovereign. Verse 1 says... God is a king, a supreme ruler. Down in verse 5, he is described as majestic, which is to display royal splendor. In verses 11 through 13, he is described as having an everlasting kingdom and a dominion. And all of these terms and phrases and words tell us that God is a sovereign who rules. Then we began to search the scriptures and discover many more things about the sovereignty of God. First, we learned that the sovereignty of God is very important. Not just because it's in the Bible and not just because the Bible speaks of it often, but because it is practical for the way we live. It changes the way we live. Secondly, we have learned that God is sovereign, king, king. Lord, and his sovereignty is infinite and absolute. He is sovereign to every degree, in every dimension, over everything, in all times. To the highest degree of sovereignty there is, he is. We have learned that God has a will for you and me. For everything whatsoever that comes to pass. So not only is he absolutely sovereign. He has a plan that encompasses everything. Not just some things. And we have learned that the will of God can be broken down into two basic categories. There is God's absolute will. His his decree. Which encompasses everything. Everything. That has, is, or will ever happen. It is all part of his plan. And nothing can thwart it. And we have nothing to do with it. God just does it because he's God. Secondly, we learn that there is a preceptive will of God. It's what God prescribes to us in his word. It's what he tells us to do or not do. And we can thwart what he prescribes for us to do in his word. And it is not absolutely certain to come to pass because what God prescribes, his desirous will, can be thwarted by sinful creatures. We must comply if that part of his will is going to come to pass. So he has an overarching will that encompasses all things and then he has this preceptive will that he prescribes things to us in the Bible to do or to not to do, not to do. And all of this tells us that God is sovereign. There is no chance. Chance does not exist. Our minds are so distorted. We are so saturated in the world that we pick up their lingo and we pick up their their ideas that are not true. Luck does not exist. You can look all the way through the pages of Scripture. Luck is not even acknowledged. Only God. Mother Nature does not exist. There is no Mother Nature. All storms, all earthquakes, all sunrises and sunsets, all rainbows and disasters are acts of God. The insurance companies have it right. They are acts of God. And you need to think about this the next time you see the sun coming up or you feel the wind in your face or you feel a little tremble or you hear of a tornado or a hurricane or anything like that. Don't think, oh, Mother Nature has really conjured up a big one. No, God did. It was God who sent the storm and God who sends the earthquake. It is God who sends the sun. It is God who does it. He is sovereign. All those people are trying to go get lucky in Vegas. They aren't. They just have providence. They're providenced, but they are not lucky. You know, when you think about this, you're, you're thinking, okay, God's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. And, and what about that person who got hit by a drunk driver and was killed? God. It was God. Well, what about that big tornado that just ripped through that town and killed all those people? God. Well, I know this person who was laid off of their job. God. But but oh, God, it was God. You remember when God pointed Job out to Satan and Satan had attacked Job, right? And Job then says, "What? God, look what Satan did to me." Is that what he said? No, the Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because it was the Lord. Did Satan do it? Yes. But who was in control of Satan? Well, God. And who made Satan? Well, God. And who sustained Satan? Well, God. And who pointed Job out to Satan? God. And who could have stopped it? God. And who chose not to stop it? God. And why did Job attribute everything to God? It was God. God. That's why. Oh sure, God used Satan. God used the Sabaeans and he used the Chaldeans. God used Job's foolish wife. And God used his well-intentioned friends to persecute him relentlessly. But it was God over all of those things. You see, if you're going to be happy and fulfilled in this life, if you are going to live a God-glorifying life, you must come to grips with the sovereignty of God. You must understand it as it is presented in the pages of Scripture, or you will worry and fret yourself to death. God's sovereignty in your life is, And in the lives of others and in all events in the world and everything that happens, both good and evil is under his control. And you must come to grips with that. Now we ended last time asking some difficult questions. Because when you start talking about his absolute, all-encompassing decree, then you begin to wonder, well, what about sin? What about evil? What about, you know, when bad things happen to good people? Does this make God responsible and culpable for both tempting people and and demons and things like that? How could a perfectly holy and just God allow all the wickedness we see in the world to happen if, in fact, He is a good and holy and just God? Well, this morning... I want to answer these questions. We are going to look at two different doctrines. The first, the sovereignty of God in relationship to evil. And second, the doctrine of concurrence. And if you don't know what that is, you will. First, let's talk about the will of God in relationship to evil. Now, when it comes to the absolute decree of God in relationship to evil, things get very complicated. Things get complicated. And I want to show you how evil is part of God's plan And some of the reasons why. I want to show you why sin is part of God's plan. And some of the reasons why. But before we do this, I just want to remind you of a few things you probably already know and are already convinced of. Because most people learn these things, they just don't learn the other things. First, you probably know that God is perfectly holy and righteous. Holiness is to be separate from sin. To be perfectly holy is to be absolutely separate from sin. He is righteous, which means he always does right. He does not take pleasure in evil or wickedness or sin at all. Secondly, you probably know that God is not tempted and he himself tempts no man. James one thirteen. God is not tempting anybody to sin. And he himself is not tempted to sin. Third, we know that men and angels have some freedom of choice. They are responsible for their actions and sins. Not God. God holds men and demons responsible for their acts of rebellion. Fourth, we know that God... The God whom you worship and serve is absolutely sovereign. Now, these are basic concepts. They're pretty much universally understood. They're acknowledged, at least. God does not make us sin, He does not cause us to sin, He does not tempt us to sin. He does not sin. He does not want us to sin. He takes no pleasure in sin, wickedness, or evil. Now keep that in mind. Now make sure that you understand where we're going with this because we've mentioned this before. Remember, sovereignty is a position of authority. The will of God is God's plan to do Accomplish certain things because he is sovereign. And then how God exactly accomplishes his will is through concurrence and providence and things we'll look at later. So we have a position of authority, a will or desire based off that position, and then acting out of the will or desire because he is able, because of his position, And the direction of his actions go in the direction of his will. Keep that in mind. We also know, and we discussed this a little bit, that God, when you're talking about his sovereignty, and you're talking about concurrence and providence, which are things you don't need to worry about right now. We'll get there. You start wondering, okay, now, how how does sin fit into an absolute sovereign God's doings? Well, we learned that God acts in two specific ways, and he has two different kinds of will. Now, God acts both positively and negatively positively and negatively that's what theologians choose to call it let me explain let's say you're a parent you're out there barbecuing some hamburgers and you've got their nice little barbecue and they're sizzling and they smell good you put just the right you know seasonings on them and you've got this little son who's sitting there and he's very curious about the barbecue and especially what's on the barbecue But he's not quite tall enough to see the burgers over the edge. And he's tempted. And you know he's tempted because you can see him. He wants to go up there and grab onto the edge of the barbecue and lift himself up. But being a parent and being wise and having burnt yourself before. (laughs) You know that this is an unwise thing. You do not want him to touch the barbecue. Because you understand the consequence So you tell your son, son, don't touch the barbecue. It's hot. It will burn you. Do not touch it. No, no. Now, you're standing there next to your child. Now, your child is a sinner. Your child has a sinful heart. And you begin to look at your child... Start leaning towards the barbecuer. Now you are sovereign over the situation. Your hand is hovering right over the nap of your child's neck (laughs) to grab your child and stop your child. Now there's two different ways you can act. One is positively. Your, Your child decides to go for it, grab the edge, lift himself up and look anyways and you snatch the child and pull him back and say, I told you no. Go in the house. Now let me ask you this. You stopped your child from touching the barbecue. But did you stop your child from sinning? No. Because the child's rebellion was in their heart. And their heart wanted to give birth to an action. You just merely stopped the consequence of the sin. But you did not stop the sin. And if you're a wise parent you will go deal with your child. Here's another way you can act negatively. You're sitting there, you're thinking, look okay, at he's gonna look anyways. He's gonna disobey me. I'm gonna let him. He's gonna grab that barbecue and it's gonna burn his little fingies. He's gonna get blisters and he'll never do it again. I'll say, "Ah, uh, you should listen to Dad. So he lunges, he grabs! Ah! That's to act negatively. In both cases, you're sovereign over the situation. You're in control. You know what's going to happen. You see it coming. You can even act positively. Stop. Negatively. Allow him to do it. In either way, he sinned and it's not your fault. Okay. That's what I mean by positive and negative action. Well, here's Eve in the garden. And God knows before he even creates the world what's going to happen. He knows that Satan's in the garden. He knows that the serpent is going to deceive Eve. And he could either stop the serpent or he could stop Eve. Or he could intervene and let Eve get deceived and stop Adam. But by negative action, he chooses to allow them to choose what is wrong. And he is not culpable for their sin. Even though he is sovereign over every dimension of it. God was not responsible for Adam and Eve's rebellion. But their rebellion was part of his eternal decree. Now. I want to stretch your mind out a bit. No, a lot. We're going to mess with you big time now. Get your swords out. We are going to look at some texts that show how God indirectly brings about evil or allows evil to exist or uses evil or sin for his good purposes. The first example I want you to turn to is Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Verse 21, God is speaking to Moses and the Lord says this, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go later look at chapter 7 verse 3 but i will harden pharaoh's heart that i might multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of egypt and if this isn't enough you could look at exodus 912 and 1020 and 1027 and 1110 and 144 and 148 just in case but then you read commentators and they say things like, well, no, you know, what really happened is, is first Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then God hardened his heart. The problem with that is, is this. Twice before the text mentions Pharaoh hardening his heart, God said he would do it. Another problem with that interpretation is Romans 9. Turn there. In Romans 9, Paul Is explaining the sovereignty of God in salvation. And in verse 15, he begins to describe God's absolute sovereignty. And he says this for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll just stop there for a second. No one deserves to have compassion. No one deserves mercy. Those are undeserved grace. If they were deserved, they would not be grace, would they? Salvation is of grace. It's not deserved. It's perfectly fair for god not to be compassionate verse 16 so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on but god who has mercy and you say well that almost sounds like it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs that's exactly what it says. Well, you mean to tell me, you know, when I was saved, I mean, I did this and I did that. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. But Jack, it does not depend. But on God. Read it. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now here is the illustration of how it doesn't depend on man. Man. Look at what the text says. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Quoting Exodus nine sixteen. And you're thinking, well, yeah, but that doesn't say he hardened his heart. Look at verse eighteen. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires god does and in addition to this you could go to psalm 105:25 which says this referring to the egyptians and their attitude towards israel psalm 105:25 says god turned their hearts to hate his people Mm. How do you deal with that? Well, let's just say the whole Pharaoh incident wasn't in the Bible. Then you could go to Joshua chapter 10 verse 20 and read what God did to the Canaanites. In Joshua 10:20, Joshua said, For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that's the Canaanite hearts, to meet Israel in battle in order that he, that is God, might utterly destroy them that they might receive no mercy but that he that is god might destroy them just as the lord had commanded moses commanded moses to what to destroy them you could turn to judges 923 and read how god used an evil spirit for his purpose then god as the text says in judges 923 sent god sent An evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. You mean to tell me that God actually sent an evil spirit? No, but that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible tells us, not me. It's right there. Do you remember that God did the same thing to Saul, didn't he? I mean what happened Saul sinned and sinned and what does the text say First Samuel 16:14 says this Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him You mean to tell me that God actually would would actually send an evil spirit to torment somebody Absolutely why? Because he's sovereign. The Lord is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. They're thinking, oh, Jack, you're ruining my image of God. Good. Good. You may remember the story of Samson. Do you remember the story of Samson? God gave him this incredible strength. If you remember, he was he was super strong. <clears throat> and God gave him that strength so he could defeat the philistines israel's enemies right now this is what's interesting is samson used his strength to be a very strong womanizer instead of defeat the philistines and so god decided to use samson's strength of womanizing his sin to inflict judgment on the Philistines. So this is what happened. Samson in Judges 14 is going along and he sees a woman of the Philistines and she's a pagan woman, a Philistine woman, an idol-worshipping pagan Gentile Philistine woman. But she's a looker. So she's got that going for her. Now, she, he tells her parents, and this is not this is this is not a good dating technique. Tells his parents, get her for me. She looks good to me. <laughs> he likes the way she looks. Period. And the parents say, Samson. Isn't there anybody among your relatives or extended relatives or anybody in Israel that you can marry that you would go to one of these pagan idol-worshiping, heathen, Gentile Philistines to get yourself for a wife? Get yourself a wife. Now listen to what Judges 14.4 says. Now listen to this. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord For he, that is God, was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Do you mean to tell me that God wanted Samson to marry that heathen? That's what the text says. Was it Samson's fault? Yes. Did Samson lust for a woman he shouldn't have? Yes. Did he ask his parents to get her, that woman? Yes. Was it right? No. Did God use it? Yes. And if you read the story, you find out what happened. You know, he made the little wager about the, you know, the lion and the honey in it, and gave him the riddle, and they couldn't figure it out. So they went to his wife, and they said, "Hey, you need to find out the answer." And so she just, you know, pecked a hole in him trying to find out the answer, and you know, nagged him and nagged him and nagged him, and finally he said, "Okay, this is the answer." And then she ran to the Philistines and said, "This is the answer." And then the Philistines ran to Samson and said, "We know the answer." And so Samson got really mad. And you know what he did? He wiped out a bunch of them. Which is what God wanted all along. That was why he had the strength. And so God got him to do it. And if you read the story. He got him to do it in a couple other ways like that. And then his pagan wife was given to his friend. Who of course wasn't his friend anymore. And so he didn't get to have her. For very long. You're thinking well. God actually did that? Absolutely. That's nothing. Turn to 2nd Samuel 24. We're just getting started. You're thinking to yourself, "Well, Jack, this is uncomfortable to me." Good. It's good to be uncomfortable sometimes. 2nd Samuel 24. These are all those verses you weren't you wish weren't in the Bible, but they are. So we're just going to look at them this morning and get it over with. Second Samuel twenty four one. We read Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Israel was in sin. God was angry with them, his anger was burned burning against them, and it that is God incited David against them to say, Go number the Israel and Judah. And you're thinking, Okay, God incited Israel to go number the people. Okay. Look down at verse 10. Now David's heart was troubled after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. Notice, whose sin was it, David? Whose will was it, God's? You're thinking, it was God's will for him to sin? This isn't the half of it. Turn to 1st Chronicles. This is the parallel text. 1st Chronicles. Where should we turn in 1st Chronicles? Maybe 21. That's where I'm turning. 1st Chronicles 21 verse 1. This is the parallel text. Notice what it says here. Then Satan stood up Against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So who was it? Did David number him? Yes. Did Satan number him? Move him to number him? Yes. Did God do it? Yes. Oh, you're saying to yourself, I don't understand this. Well, could God tempt David? No, he himself tempts no man. So how did he do that? He told Satan, Satan, go tempt David. When you do, I'm going to punish you for it and punish him for it. (laughs) Why? Because they're in sin and I need to punish them, so go make him sin. I will punish you and punish him for it. And who can resist the will of God? He did it and he punished him. You're thinking, but Jack, remember, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Thinking, oh, this is is scary. This isn't scary. This is the Bible. Isn't this exactly what happened in the book of Job? I mean, here's Job described as a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and God... Six Satan on him. You read this in Job chapter 1 verse 8 and verse 12 and 15 and 17 and 19 and chapter 2 verse 3 and 6 and 7. Twice, twice God pointed Job out to Satan. It was God who knew beforehand what Satan would request. So God pointed Job out to Satan, knowing Satan would say, hey, all you got to do is just wipe out everything he has. So God says, okay, so he does, which included his daughters and his sons. And so the second time God says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Knowing what Satan would say, knowing what he would want to do, and he did it. Now turn to Job chapter 2 verse 3. Job chapter 2 verse 3. This is after the first, this is after he's lost all his possessions and he was the richest man in all the east. And his sons and his daughters, this happy little family. And right before the second time, this is when God is pointing Job out to Satan for the second time. And notice what he says in verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, Now listen to this. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you have incited me against him to ruin him without cause we already read the other verse which Job says the Lord has given the Lord has taken away now God's blaming Satan but who's in control of all of this was Satan it was Satan who did the dirty deed but God was sovereign over all that Satan did You see, if God lost control of anything, of just a little bit, or if God did not have control over evil, you would need to worry. Because that would mean that God was not control over anyone or any demon. And he would be out of control and he wouldn't be God. And you think to yourself, well, Jack, that's just—that's just. I mean, maybe the, maybe there's an explanation for these texts. Well, we could go to First Samuel 2:25, where the text says, "It was the will of the Lord to slay Eli's sons." Or we could go to 2 Samuel 12:15 through 18, where God strikes David's son so he dies. Or we could go to 1 Kings 11:14 and 23, where God raises up evil kings against Solomon. Or 1 Kings 22:23, where it says the Lord put a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. Or Isaiah 10:5, where God promises to use wicked Assyrians to punish His people. Or Jeremiah 25:9, where it says the Babylonians were used by God, even though they were very wicked and barbaric and pagan, to punish His people. And what is interesting is that God then punished the Assyrians and punished the Babylonians for their sin. Jesus, speaking of the disciples, said in John 6 69, Did I myself not choose you twelve? Yet one of you is a devil? That's what Jesus said. You, You mean Jesus knew Jesus knew everything. He was God. Well, you mean he picked Judas on purpose? Of course he did. God does everything on purpose. God never does a flippant thing ever. And he picked Judas. Knowing Judas was going to betray him. Knowing it would lead to his crucifixion. He had prophesied it. He wanted it to happen. It was part of his decree to get glory for himself. Now, some of you may be thinking jack you're you're, you're saying that evil is part of god 's plan, of course it is, and sin is part of his plan, absolutely, and if it wasn't, it wouldn't be because everything is part of god's plan. Remember, God is absolutely sovereign and his decree encompasses everything whatsoever that comes to pass. And of course he has a plan for evil and sin. Does that mean he likes it? No, but he allows it. And he uses it. Why? For his good pleasure. Listen to what the prophet Amos asks in Amos chapter three, verse six. He asks a series of questions, each with an implied answer of no, and says this, if calamity occurs in the city, Has not the Lord done it? This word calamity is the standard Hebrew word for evil. I think it appears like 600 and some times, and 500 times it appears as evil, and most of the other times it appears wicked or bad. And so it says, If evil occurs in the city, has not the Lord done it? What? What? Isaiah says the same thing, Isaiah 50, 45, 7, God describes himself as the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating ra, evil, wicked, bad. I am the Lord, the text says, who does all these things. The word create is the same word create in Genesis 1 word where it says God bara created everything out of Nothing. You might be thinking to yourself, Well, why are you telling me this? Are you you're, you're, you're trying to mess with my God and, and you're trying to listen, if your God is not this God, your God is not God. This is the God that we worship, and the only God. And if you're not worshiping this God, you're worshiping an idol. Lamentations 3:38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and evil go forth? Well, Isaiah 63, 17. You ever read this one? You just kind of read a little faster? Where Isaiah says, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Oh, man. What are you doing? I'm telling you who God is. A.W. Pink, in his work, The Attributes of God, said this, quote, The God of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God who is now talked about in the average pulpit spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences is a figment of human imagination. An invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom form gods out of wood and stone, while millions of heathen inside of Christendom manufacture a god out of their own carnal mind. In reality, they are but atheists, for there is no other possible alternative between an absolute supreme god and no God at all, a God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits nothing but contempt End quote if you don't have a correct understanding of God and worship that. Whatever it is, false idea of God, that is idolatry. Pink is right. You see, there is great comfort in knowing that God is totally and absolutely sovereign. But as soon as you say he's sovereign over everything but evil, then you're in trouble, aren't you? Because the whole world is evil. That means he's out of control. And what this means for you and me is that you can relax and trust God. You can relax and trust God when bad things happen. When that drunk driver plows into that person and kills them or paralyzes them from the neck down. God has a reason for all of that. Do you remember the disciples when they're walking along in John's Gospel, and they're they talking about the Tower of Siloam and how it fell on people and the blind man, and they're saying, "Well, you know, why was this man born blind? Was it because it was he sinned, or was it because of his parents who sinned?" Do you remember what Jesus's answer was? Neither. He was born this way that he might what? Give glory to God, and then he healed him. We already learned that by allowing sin, God put many of his attributes on display which otherwise would never have been known. His justice, his mercy, his long-suffering, his wrath, his forgiveness, his compassion. All of those things would not be known apart from sin. So he allows sin. He uses sin. Even though he doesn't like it. He allows it and uses it for his good purposes and if you know Jesus Christ for our blessing. That is so heavy. I was reading Samuel, the letters of Samuel Rutherford. If you've never read, Samuel Rutherford was Elizabethan Puritan. He was uh, kicked out of his pulpit and sent into exile when uh, he would not conform, along with 2,000 other ministers, would not conform to state-run church. And in exile, he went into this big, you know, swamp of depression and he just was bummed out, and he could hardly get over it, and he was just just bummed out. And finally, started thinking about God and God's sovereignty and God's plan. And he studied the scriptures, and he started getting out of his mud hole, mental mud hole. And he thought, you know, this is all part of God's plan. And he actually became quite cheerful. And then he decided, "You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to encourage people. So he started writing letters to people to encourage them, all these people back home, he wrote letter after letter, encouraging them in the scriptures and the Lord. And this is one of the things he said in one of those letters, quote, "I find it most truthful that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations." If my waters would stand, they would become stagnant. Faith is the better for the free air and the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace grows thin without adversity. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons, End quote. You ever think of that? Praise God for Temptation. If it wasn't for temptation, I wouldn't have to trust God. I wouldn't learn how to live by faith. I wouldn't learn how to live by his resources. All those things God allows in my life so that I can rely on them and use his resources and all these things are good. You know that God is sovereign. You know that he neither tempts anyone to sin nor sins himself, but is perfectly and holy and righteous. But you know that evil is part of his plan. He has sovereign control over all that happens. And he just chooses not to stop it yet. And he does it for his glory and your blessing. Now you ask yourself, but Jack, how does all this work out? I mean, how does God hold us responsible for our sin and demons and, and punish them and, you know, all these other wicked things happen and, and God says, I hate sin and I don't want to be part of sin and I'm, I'm separated from sin and yet he uses sin. I mean, how can that be? And, and how, can he, how does he actually even get, get to the place where he can accomplish anything if all of these people are sinning? Well, this is the doctrine of concurrence. And we want to close with a short definition of this. What is concurrence? What is concurrence? Well, if we were to say, oh, that happened concurrently, we would mean what? At the same time. At the same time. Concurrence is the doctrine that says that God is able to allow men and angels to make choices, have certain freedoms, and yet at the same time, he is able to achieve his perfect will without error every time. You're thinking, well, how does that work? I don't know. All I know, that's what the Bible teaches. Remember when we defined sovereignty, we made it clear that sovereignty means that God is over all and in control of all, but it does not mean we are robots. We have choice. God has put choice in his decree for us to have. Now, one of my seminary professors defined this. Now, you're going to like this little phrase. This is his definition of concurrence. And this is one of those things you write down if you want to wow somebody. The simultaneity of first and second causes. It's one of the things that either instantly puts you asleep or makes your mouth drop open. Now, you just break this down. Simultaneity... We know what that means. Simultaneously, it means at the same time. That's easy. So at the same time, first and second causes. You're going, what, what is a first and second cause? Well, let me explain what a cause is. A cause is something that causes something to happen, right? It causes some sort of effect or result. Now, in physics and in philosophy, you learn that there is a cause and effect relationship for everything that happens, For instance, this pulpit here. How did this pulpit get here? Well, somebody moved it from over there. Well, how did it get over there? Well, it was moved from over here. And every week it gets moved back and forth by different people for different reasons. And if you go back and forth and back and forth, there was one day it was moved here for the first time. It was moved here out of Lewstone's truck. Well, how did that truck get here? Well, it drove over here. By itself? No. It was caused to be driven over here. And the tailgate was open, and the thing was brought in here. But how did it get in the back of his truck? Well, it got in the back of his truck because it was put there by Lou. And where did he get it? Out of his garage. Well, how did it get in there? Spontaneous generation? No. It was caused to be there. Why? Because there was a bunch of lumber there, and a bunch of tools there. And the tools got together with the lumber, and with Lou... Out it came, the golden calf. (laughs) Now, you ask yourself, but yeah, but how did the lumber get there? Well, the lumber got there from the truck. Well, how did it get in the truck? Well, Lou put it there. Well, how did he put it there? He got it from the lumber store. And how did the lumber store get it there? Well, they got it from the distribution center. Well, how did they get it? They got it from the forklift. Who got it from the truck? Who got it from the mill? Who got it from the forest? Who got it from the acorn? And you go back, and you go back, and you go back. And when you get all the cause and effects, and you go all the way back, guess what you get back to? God. So now you know what the first cause is. So, we've got simultaneity down, we've got first cause down. At the same time, God, the first cause, the old, nobody caused God. He is our always existed. He made everything and made everything else happen. And within his creation, he gave certain creatures volition. Like, we have, we have the decision to do things. And he gives animals the ability to do things. Now, second causes are everything else besides God that caused something to happen. So at the same time simultaneity God the ultimate cause of all things works with all the secondary causes that he created and he has a plan and a will and they have freedom of choice that God grants them and he lets them choose but yet accomplishes his perfect will every time without flaw you're thinking that is heavy well prophecy couldn't be true could it When any prophecy happens, it happens at the exact time. And if you begin to think about this, it gives you a brain cramp. (laughs) When you begin to think about all the variations and factors which go into something happening, and to think God predicts things before they happen, and yet he is able to guide all of those events to achieve his absolute perfect will, it is mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. You're wondering, how could this be? Well, I don't know how he does it. He just does. He's all-powerful and nothing is impossible for him. You know, you look at Christ. Was it prophesied that Christ would come? Sure. That he would die? Yes. Is the crucifixion all prophesied in the Bible? Yes. Was it God's plan? Yes. Did Jesus say, no one takes my life from me? Yes. Yes. Was he the sacrifice who willingly came, who willingly was born, who willingly offered himself as a sacrifice? Yes. Does the scripture say the Jews killed him? Yes. The Gentiles killed him? Yes. Herod? Yes. Pilate? Yes. The Roman soldiers? Yes. Well, who did it, God? And all those entities were part of his plan to bring about his perfect will. He holds those men responsible for what they did, and yet it was His plan to see Jesus died to save those who killed him. You remember we looked at Acts chapter 2 verses 22 and 23. Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by, here we go, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men having put him to death. Well, who did it? The godless men? Yes. The Jews? Yes. God? Yes. That people is concurrence. The simultaneity of first and second causes. God is allow God allows men and demons to rebel against him. He gives them choice. He gives you and I choice. And we are working, and sometimes we are working against God. But yet, he always achieves his perfect will. You're wondering how can that be? I, I don't know how he does it. But he does. And that is the kind of God that we serve and the kind of God we worship. So, what we have learned here today, and I hope you leave here, understand that God is sovereign, that He uses both good and evil for His good purposes. You need to learn to trust that everything happens is under His sovereign control, that He is not out of control of anything. And if you are his child, he has a glorious plan for you, and he will cause all things to work together for your good. That means the good things and the bad things, even your sin, he can use it. And he will use it because he's promised to use it. He knows he is in control. He will get the glory for himself and he will get blessing for everyone who knows him to the praise of the glory of his grace because he's sovereign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are able to strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. And Father, we don't understand how you do what you do We do know you're holy, we know you're righteous, we know that you take no pleasure in sin, but yet you have created us with the ability to sin, knowing we're going to sin, and you allow us to sin. And Father, when we do sin, you use that for your glory. And Father, we are amazed. We are amazed at what your word says, of how how you have used men and situations, which to us seem very bad, and to which you... No, are very bad and yet you use them for good because you are all wise and all powerful and all sovereign and nothing is impossible for you and father we want to worship you for who you are we want to worship the true God not some figment of our imagination we want to live every day trusting you and relax to grace knowing that you are in control And Father, may you receive the glory and honor and praise as we seek to submit to what we've learned from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.